My older brother George was there, and we were all together, and it was wonderful. And we all have the same sense of humor. It was delightful. What a joy to see my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren rolling their eyes at all the puns. And so I thought it would be good to share with you. This is a pun that I got from my brother, George. It says, the older I get, the more I regret all the people I've lost over the years. Maybe being a trail guide wasn't such a great idea after all. (laughs) Kills me. I love it. Anyway, as you know, each week we've been studying an entire book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And we're doing that to lay the foundation for our upcoming study of the book of Hebrews. You see, the writer of Hebrews assumes that you and I, the reader, will know Old Testament history and be very familiar with it. And so to prepare us for this study, we're going to do, or are doing, a review, an overview of the Old Testament. Let me remind you, the history of the Old Testament is very important. God put these history lessons together for us. And Romans 15, 14 tells us that they were written to teach us and to encourage us and to give us hope. In this history, we see the context of God's promises and his covenants, and we see an unbroken record of his faithfulness. God wants you and I to take this history to heart and to learn from it. In 2 Samuel, It tells the story of one of the most well-known and beloved Old Testament characters, a man named David. And here in Psalm 78, we're reminded that it was God who chose David to be king. It was God who took him from being a lowly shepherd boy to the king of Israel. And I'd like you to pay attention as we begin in verse 70. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. God chose David. And the truth is, we probably wouldn't have chosen David. Uh, David was the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse, and, and he was a nobody. Uh, In fact, when Saul went to Jesse and said, bring all of your sons before me so the Lord can tell me which of them will be the next king of Israel, guess which son Jesse didn't bother to bring along? Because it couldn't be David. Uh, No way he was going to be the chosen king. But God looks on the heart, and God chose David. And there are 62 chapters of the Bible that deal with the life of David. Compare that to Abraham, who only has 14. There are 59 references in the New Testament to David. Twice, David is called a man after God's own heart, and David is listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And here in 2 Samuel, God tells us about the reign of King David over Israel. Last week, Luke covered 1 Samuel, and boy, did he do such a great job. Uh, I just love Luke. And when he covered eight books of the Old Testament in two minutes, wasn't that just amazing? I mean, uh, kudos to him for that. Well done, sir. But uh, 
In 1 Samuel, we were introduced to Samuel the prophet and Saul the first king of Israel. And woven into the life of Saul, we were introduced to the young king-elect named David. As Luke reminded us, Saul was not a godly king. Saul was jealous of David, and he hated him, and spent years trying to hunt him down and kill him. And 1 Samuel ends with the tragic defeat of Israel by the hand of the Philistines, and King Saul taking his own life. It is this death of Saul that allows David to come out of hiding and to become king. David is going to rule for 40 and a half years. First, he will rule in Hebron for seven and a half years over just part of the kingdom of Israel. And then he'll rule in Jerusalem for 33 years over the entire nation. And 2 Samuel, if you want to look at the structure, it's made up of three parts. The first 10 chapters are all the good things. This is David being victorious, victory after victory, everything goes well, and it covers 20 years of his life. The next 10 chapters tell the story of David's troubles. This is the story of David's sin and all the consequences that are the result of it. And it too covers about 20 years of his life. And then there is an epilogue, kind of a mismatch of, of things. The content's not chronological, but in chapter 21, David sorts out an old sin and the implications of what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. In chapter 22, David sings a song of praise to God that is just beautiful and amazing. In chapter 23, it records David's last words. And in chapter 24, it tells the story of David committing the sin of numbering his troops in a census. We'll take about 10 minutes for each of the 24 chapters of 2 Samuel. No, we won't. <laughs> but let's pray. Let's ask God to teach us through this history lesson that he's put before us. Our Father, it is good to be here today to worship you and to study your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would just quiet our hearts and open our minds and our ears. Help us to listen well. Help us to grasp the lessons that you have for us here in 2 Samuel and rejoice in the truths. And again, as we see your faithfulness, may we be encouraged. I pray, Father, your blessing on our time together. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Let's start with the story of David's triumphs. Chapter 1 begins with David learning of Israel's defeat at the hands of the Philistines, and he learns of the death of King Saul and his dear friend Jonathan. And immediately we see that the character and spiritual maturity of the new King David is far different than that of Saul. Even though Saul had hated David and had been trying to kill him for years, David does not celebrate his death or take joy in it. In fact, he leads the entire nation in mourning the death of Saul. Had it been reversed, Saul would have had a celebration. This would have been a woohoo moment for sure. But Saul, excuse me, David knew that Saul was God's anointed king and leads the nation in mourning. 
we begin to see the character and the heart of David from day one. And as you go to chapter two and verse one, we see the new king, David, on his knees in prayer before God. Verse one of chapter two, and after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. We see the heart of David. David looks to God for direction. Uh, he wants to know God's will. He wants to know how to please him. Shall I go up, Lord? Okay, where shall I go? Um, he's a man of prayer, a man with a heart for God. And I want you to think about this. David is just 30 years old when he becomes king. That is a tremendous amount of responsibility that has been thrust upon him. But as we're gonna see from day one, David is prepared and ready to be king. And he has a depth of character and maturity that seems far beyond his years. I don't know about you, but when I hear someone is 30, it seems young to me, right? <laughs> it seems like they're still a kid and they've got some growing up to do. There was a time when I was younger and I thought 30 was over the hill. If you were 30, man, you are old. Um, but it reminds me <clears throat> that God used that first 30 years of David's life to mold him and shape him and to give him depth of character and faith. That all the trouble and difficulties, those nights watching his father's sheep, to the days of him being on the run, fleeing from Saul's persecution. In those moments of trial and disappointment and grief, David learned to trust God. And he learned to grow deep in his faith. And he learned from Saul how not to be king. And so God used all those moments. And it's just a reminder, God is using the afflictions and troubles and problems of our lives and he's working all things together for good, just as he did in David's life. What others meant for evil, God intended for good. So in chapter two, war breaks out between the house of Saul and the house of David because the northern tribes have installed the son of Saul, a man by the name of Ish-bosheth. Ish and, and so war breaks out between Saul's family and David. And the war continues, and we see in chapter 3 that the house of David grows stronger and stronger. In chapter 4, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is murdered. Resistance to David collapses, and David becomes king of the entire nation. But I want you to notice in chapter 4 and in verse 4 that God, who is writing this historical account, kind of draws our attention to this obscure piece of information and notice verse four, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, why are we learning about this five-year-old boy Mephibosheth. And it is setting up because in chapter 9, God is going to once again reveal the character 
of David. You see, the reason this nurse was panicking and rushing off is because she knew the house of, David, house of Saul had fallen. And typically when the new king, new king came in, he would first of all murder or kill all of the family members of the previous king. So this nurse thought that David was going to murder her and Mephibosheth, and so she is panicking and in haste. Uh, she's rushing and Mephibosheth fell and he becomes lame. But David wasn't vengeful. He was not a jealous, self-focused king like Saul was. His goal was to please the Lord and pursue God's will. And so if you go to chapter 9 in verse 1, David, we see his shepherd's heart. He wants to bless the house of Saul. And in verse 1, David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, Jonathan was a dear friend. And David wanted to honor his friend and his promise to his friend. And so they tell him about Mephibosheth. And he calls for Mephibosheth to come to him. And notice chapter 9 and verse 7. I think Mephibosheth expects to be killed maybe thrown in prison, he's expecting the worst. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and, and you shall eat at my table always. And I love what Mephibosheth says, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David shows his heart being kind and generous. And it's a wonderful picture of grace, unmerited, undeserved favor shown because of the sake of Jonathan. And it's just a reminder of God's blessing and favor to us who deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And yet God pours out his kindness and generosity and he invites us to his table all because of Jesus, all because of his grace. And can you picture David's table as the food is set and it's glorious and wonderful and there's David and there's Amnon and there's Tamar and there's Absalom and there's Mephibosheth. And it is a beautiful picture of what grace can do. So God wanted us to know the heart of David. And if you go back to chapter 5, David conquers the city of Jerusalem, and it's called the city of David. It's the capital of Israel. In chapter 6, David wants to honor the Lord and make Jerusalem the center of worship, so he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he dances before the Lord in great joy and worship. And we, again, we see his love and heart for God. And in chapter 7, David wants to build a house for God. But God tells him, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David. And he tells David in chapter 7 that your son will rule on your throne and he'll be the one who'll build my temple. And of course, that's Solomon. But notice chapter six, or verse 16 of chapter 7. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God establishes a wonderful covenant with David. 
that's called the Davidic covenant. God promises David a house, a kingdom, and a throne that will last forever. And we could spend a lot of time here. This is a wonderful promise. But this is all fulfilled in the Messiah. The Messiah would be a descendant of David and will one day rule and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. And if you go to Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, remember what the angel told Mary. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the angel told her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. That comes from the promise made to David in the Davidic covenant. Christ is going to fulfill that promise. God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What a glorious promise. The first time Christ came as a suffering servant, as our Savior, to bring us to God. But Christ is coming again, and in his second coming, he is going to rule and reign on the throne of David, and his kingdom will last forever and ever. To which we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Now, I want you to notice that when the Lord told David, you're not going to be able to build the temple, he didn't grumble, he didn't complain, there was no discontentment, just humble gratitude, and his focus was on God being glorified. I want you to notice verse 18 of chapter 7. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? God, you have been so good, and who am I that you have blessed me? That's humility before God. And verse 26, And your name will be magnified. And that's what what mattered to David. He had a heart for God. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, David defeats 11 enemies with God's help secures Israel's borders and brings in prosperity. And so at the end of chapter 10, David is at his peak. He has been king for a little over 20 years. Um, And he's on a roll. I would say a hot dog bun because he's a wiener. (laughs) I just had to see if you were still with me, you know. We can edit that out of the video. (laughs) David has united the country, established Jerusalem as its capital. He's defeated his enemies. He's brought security and prosperity. He's a godly man. He's a wonderful king, a man of prayer. He has ruled with kindness and goodness and justice, and he is loved, and he is respected, and he is a great success. And it is at this moment he's about to make a tragic decision that will change everything and fill his life with trouble and continual problems within his family. And so now let's look at the story of David's troubles. In chapters 11 through 20, God tells us the story of David's sin and his consequences 
and he holds up the life of David like a flashing neon sign for us to pay attention to and to take it to heart. God is saying, don't miss what I'm telling you about sin and its consequences. In chapter 11, as we read this story, it's shocking. We would never expect this man of God, this man of prayer, this successful, wonderful king to commit this kind of sin with Bathsheba. But as Christians, we must remember there's never a time when we're no longer tempted by sin. We will never get to the point where we're so spiritual that we're beyond temptation. And we must remember that Christian leaders, we should never put them on a pedestal as if they're always going to be perfect. We're all sinners and we all are prone to sin. And it is foolish for you and I to approach this chapter to think and, and think I could never have done that kind of sin because the truth is you could. David reminds us that when everything is going well in our lives, when we're comfortable, when we're secure, that it's those moments that can be very dangerous to us. I don't know what happened, but I do know it's easy to get lulled into a, a routine and sometimes we get lazy and we, we stop pursuing our walk with the Lord and we just kind of coast along and we're not as intentional and we get careless and we fail to guard our hearts. And I think that's what happened to David. In chapter one, 11, verse one, it was in the spring of the year when kings go to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Raboth. But David remained at Jerusalem. And in verse two and following, we see that David walks out on the roof of his palace, which was very customary. It would be cooler outside there. And so he walks out late afternoon onto the roof of his house and he looks and there is Bathsheba, a very beautiful woman, taking a bath on the roof of her house. I want you to know that David didn't plan on sinning with Bathsheba. It was not on his to-do list. This was just another ordinary day. He's relaxing, he's taking it easy and uh, temptation strikes. And in an unguarded moment, he is swept away. Now, did David put himself in danger? Should he have been off leading the army of Israel? I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. What was going on in his mind? What was he thinking in that moment? I don't know. But I do know his heart lied to him. His lust deceived him. If he's thinking nobody will know, what harm can it do? It's gonna be okay. In that moment of temptation, David could have run away. He could have turned his back. He could have went into his palace, but instead he made a plan. Here's how I'm gonna get that woman that I want. And it's sad. And I've thought a lot about this. I don't know how much accountability David had in his life, but it is easy for leaders who have earned the trust and respect of others to fall into secret sins because everyone assumes they're walking with God and spiritual leaders can fake 
a spiritual walk with the Lord easily. Every one of us, and I think especially leaders, need accountability. And often leaders remain aloof and distant from others. And so when they fall into secret sins, nobody really knows and no one can tell. And I think it's just so vital that all of us have accountability and transparency. We need people who really know us and who can speak truth into our lives. Instead of fleeing, David makes this terrible plan, and in his lust, he sends a servant to find out who is this woman. And in verse 3 of chapter 11, notice what the servant says. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Can you picture the servant? David's like, go find out who she is. And the servant's like, well, this is really weird. He comes back, and notice what he says. She's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam doesn't mean anything to you and me, but Eliam was one of David's heroes. He was one of David's mighty men. He was a well-known person. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's a married woman, David. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. We don't know Uriah the Hittite. Uh, I think Merlin went to school with him. I'm not sure. But (laughs) Uriah the Hittite was also in David's army. He was one of the heroes. He was a well-known figure, one of the mighty men of faith. And what this doesn't tell us is that one of David's most trusted counselors was a man named Ahithophel. This is his granddaughter. Bathsheba is his granddaughter, the daughter of one of his generals, the husband of one of his generals, one of his mighty men, I should say. And it didn't matter. David wanted what he wanted. And in his lust, he takes her and sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And he knows what he's done is wrong because he tries to cover up his deed. So to explain her pregnancy, we'll just bring Uriah home from the front, and it'll appear that he fathered the child. But when Uriah comes back from the front, he doesn't cooperate. He sleeps in the doorway of his house and not inside with his wife. David says, we'll just get him drunk, and that'll accomplish the plan. He gets him drunk, and yet Uriah doesn't cooperate. And so David devises an idea that I'll have him killed. And he writes orders to General Joab, make it so Uriah is killed in battle. And he hands those orders to Uriah and says, would you take this to Joab for me? How ironic that he's carrying his own death warrant to the front and he is killed. And David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and the cover-up is complete. And David has deceived himself, and he's like, okay, we're good. Because to the outsider, nothing had changed. David still appears to be this great man of God, but in reality, he is far from God. And this is David. This is our man of prayer. This is our man with a heart for God. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David beautifully concerning his sin. You see, God knew everything that David had done in secret, and what David had done 
was terribly wrong and evil. I want you to notice verse 13, where again we see the wonderful grace of God. When confronted, David confessed his sins to God, and God forgave him. Lust, adultery, murder, and God forgave him. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But I want you to notice verse 10. God tells David through Nathan that there will be consequences as a result of your sin. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And even though David confesses his sins and he is forgiven and he is restored to this right fellowship relationship with God and God loves him and he loves God and we're going to see he's going to walk with God and pray and do those good things, but he will have unending consequences for the rest of his life for the next 20 years. That's sobering because I think we take sin too lightly. Because you and I know the amazing grace of God. And sometimes we think, oh, if I sin, I just pray and God will forgive me. And I think sometimes we forget that there are consequences to our sin. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And Colossians 3, 25 for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. God will deal with sin appropriately. The sword of God's judgment begins to flash. And we see that in chapter 12, where the child of David and Bathsheba dies. In chapter 13, in a very tragic scene, David, David's oldest son, Amnon, lusts in his heart after his sister, Tamar, and he ends up raping her. And when David hears about this, he does nothing. He gets angry. But David's son Absalom plots a way to take revenge, and two years later, he ambushes Amnon and kills him, and then runs into hiding. And once again, David does nothing but grieve the loss of his son. In chapter 14, after three years in exile, David is persuaded to let Absalom come back to Jerusalem, and he does. And in chapters 15 through 18, Absalom wins over the hearts of the nation of Israel because I don't think he really likes his father. He's trying to take the throne, and he leads a rebellion, and David is forced to flee Jerusalem. And I want you to notice one of, David, uh, one of Absalom's supporters was Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba. And David was worried. I want you to notice chapter 15 and in verse 30, 31 through 34. 
And it was told David, Ahithophel is among with the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. You see, David knew Ahithophel gave godly wisdom. His wisdom and counsel was accepted like the word of God. It was so good and so true. And David knew that if he counseled Absalom, that David was, was cooked. He was done. He was going to be defeated. So David prays, God, confound the counsel of Ahithophel. And after that, while he is fleeing, he runs into his other counselor, a man by the name of Hushai. What a great name, don't you think? Hushai. What's your name? Hushai Glover. I like that. But notice what David says to him. Well, David was coming to the, verse 32, coming to the summit where God was worshiped. Behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his face. I love what David says to him. David said, if you go with me, you're going to be a burden. <laughs> That's a great verse when you're going on family vacations, you know. <laughs> I could see that. But the reason is he wants Hushai to go back and pretend to be a follower of Absalom. And so when Ahithophel gives his counsel, Hushai can give counsel that will counteract it. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 17, Ahithophel gives Absalom the right advice that would have ended up with David being killed. He tells him to go and strike David immediately. But notice verse 14, and Absalom and all the men, verse 7, excuse me, verse 7, Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai says, no, he's normally good, but he's not good this time and gives very poor advice. But in verse 14, Absalom and all the Israel says, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Hithophel. And notice the hand of God. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. See, God was with David. God was answering his prayers. They were in fellowship. He loved God. God loved him. It was good. But David is still suffering the consequences of his sin. And in chapter 18, Absalom's forces attack David, and they're defeated. And we see poor Absalom. He has this big head of hair. He's riding this mule. He gets under an oak tree, and he gets caught on the oak tree and pulled off his mule, and he's hanging, swinging, you know, by his hair on the oak tree, and Joab comes and kills him. And David is crushed. And chapter 18 ends with David wailing, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would I have died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19, strife breaks out again between Israel and the, the northern tribes and the men of Judah. In chapter 20, a man by the name of Sheba leads a rebellion, but David crushes it. Sheba is killed, and David reigns as king. There is so much we can take to heart here in 2 Samuel, but I want us to think about three things that I think are important takeaways. Number one, David reminds us how to deal with sin in our lives. We need to be rebuked. God rebukes David for his sin. God was not content to leave David in his sin. 
It was God's idea to send Nathan the prophet to him to confront him, to help David to see the sinfulness of his sin and call him to repentance. This is the very same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin broke their fellowship with God, separated them, and what did they do? They felt ashamed, so they put on some fig leaves and they hid from God. And before that moment, they used to walk with God in the garden in wonderful fellowship, and now they're covered in fig leaves, hiding from God, and they're content with that. But I'm so glad that God was not content with that. And Adam, uh, God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And it's not like God didn't know where Adam and Eve was, but he wanted Adam and Eve to see where they were. You're not walking with God, you're in hiding, and you're far from God. You and I will never deal with sin in our lives until we see the sinfulness of our sins. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. We're often blind to our sin. We can see the sin in others, but we make excuses. We justify sinful behavior. We redefine sin. A good example of that is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Would you turn there? 1 Samuel 15 and verse 13. This is a wonderful chapter that just shows us the deceitfulness of sin and a rebellious heart. King Saul had been told to destroy the Amalekites and not to take any of their possessions, none of their animals, their gold, their silver. Pretty straightforward instructions. But in verse 13, Samuel comes to Saul and Saul says to him, blessed be you, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Saul's very excited. And he tells David, I've done exactly what God wants me to do. There's only one problem. Behind him were all the animals that he had taken from the Amalekites that he wasn't supposed to. And so Samuel says, I love this, then why is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen. If you've obeyed the Lord, hello, <laughs> what are these doing here? But Saul had an excuse. I didn't sin. The people took them. I didn't do that. Well, you're the king. You're responsible. But, but you see how that works? They did that, but I obeyed the Lord. Saul needed Samuel to cut through the deception of his heart. His heart deceived him. 1 Samuel 15, 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And in verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. No, he hadn't. Not in the least. And finally, David had to, excuse me, Samuel had to confront him again and remind him to obey is better than sacrifice. And it's not until verse 24 that Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people 
and I obeyed the people. That's why Saul wasn't obeying the Lord, because he wanted to please people more than he wanted to please God. David needed Nathan to confront him to help him see the sinfulness of his sin. And I want you to remember, your feelings don't make your sin acceptable. Your logic doesn't make your sins acceptable. The opinions of the crowd do not make your sins acceptable. Your excuses do not make your sins acceptable. And it's, you know, David was okay with the cover-up. He was okay with the sin, and however he justified it. But David's sin mattered to God. And so God loved David and wanted him to restore this relationship, to confess his sins. So he sends Nathan. And I think it's a good reminder, you and I, no, we're not immune from temptation. We, like David, we have a heart that is deceitful. Your heart is prone to wander. You are prone to leave the God you love. And so you and I need the rebuke of God's word. We need to be in God's word daily. Why? Because it exposes sin in our lives and brings conviction. Don't just do what's right in your own eyes. Find out what is pleasing to the Lord. And you just need to be around good preaching and good teaching. And I just happen to know a good church where you can find some good preaching and some good teaching. And aren't you thankful to be in a church where the word of God is unapologetically preached? Amen? That's worth a woo-hoo right there. That's woo. And second, you need to be connected to God's people. You cannot do the Christian life alone. You need to have people in your life that love you and can speak truth into your life. You need accountability. You need to have a Nathan. Second, we see confession. In chapter 12, verse 13, when David was confronted by his sin, he admits his guilt, he confesses his sin, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't offer excuses. He didn't say, well, I was having a bad day, or, you know, she was so beautiful. He, he just goes, I've sinned. It was my decision. I, I sinned. Third, we see repentance. Repentance is a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior. David does not want to continue in his sin. He's ready for change. He takes his sin seriously, and he pursues a God-honoring response. There was only one episode like Bathsheba in his life, not a lifetime of them. And so true repentance brings about a desire to do what is right and to honor God. And that was in David's life. And then number four is forgiveness. God forgave David, and we need to remember to embrace God's forgiveness. You know, so often we think God forgives, and we believe that. But then we commit these horrible sins, and we think, I can't believe I did that. And then we think, I, God will never forgive me for that. But I want you to notice Psalm 32, if you'll turn there. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. David wrote this, speaking of the forgiveness he received after his sin with Bathsheba, and it's absolutely beautiful. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David was grateful not to have to pretend, not to cover up, not to hide from God. There's no deceit with God. I'm open and I'm free and I've confessed my sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what a beautiful and amazing statement. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. My friends, God can and God will forgive your sins if you repent and confess them to him. Amen? That is true. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your feelings don't have the final say. God does. Second, David reminds us that our sin has consequences. God has given us the record of David's failure, like this giant flashing neon sign that tells us, yes, if you confess your sins, your sins will be forgiven, but don't forget that there are ongoing consequences to your sin. David suffered 20 plus, well, a little over 20 years. The Bible's full of examples where he forgave people, but there were consequences. Remember Moses? God told him to speak to the rock, and instead he struck it twice. And, and he was forgiven for that, but God says, you're not going to go into the promised land because of your sin. Our sins have consequences. But see... David reminds us of the grace of God. I love this. David failed, but he was not a failure. David is not known as David the adulterer or David the murderer. He's known as David, a man after God's own heart. He's in the, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 because of God's grace. David's not defined by his sins. He's defined by his relationship with God. God didn't abandon him or forsake him, but pursued him and restored him. And my friends, we are never defined by our sins. As Christians, we are beloved children of God, and God disciplines us, but we are always his beloved children. And in 1 John 3, verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now through faith in Christ. That's good stuff. I, I would expect an amen preach it, brother, right there. Really good. And then lastly, David's failures did not hinder the work of God. God kept his promise to David, I'll build you a house, I'll build you a kingdom, I'll establish your throne forever and ever and that points to the coming rule and reign of Messiah. In his first coming, Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead to bring us to God. In him, we have the hope of our sins forgiven and eternal life with him. But at his second coming, Christ is coming to rule and reign. 
and he will so on the throne of David forever and ever in perfect righteousness. Good stuff. The words of Jeremiah seem like an appropriate way to end our study today. In Lamentations 3.40, he said this, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. As you think about the story of David, are you far from where God wants you to be? Have you done a successful cover-up in your life where no one else knows and everyone thinks you're this, but you're not, you're this, and God is saying, where are you? Because you're far from where he wants you to be. I encourage you to embrace the sinfulness of your sins and confess those sins and get right with God. And for some of us, this is a dangerous time. We are living carelessly. We're neglecting the word of God. We're not in fellowship with other believers. We're keeping our distance. We're kind of coasting and going along with routine and habit versus a passionate, intentional following after Christ. And maybe this morning it's time to reconnect and reaffirm and get serious about our spiritual life. Let's pray. And then I'd like us to sing together this wonderful hymn. O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of 2 Samuel and for this wonderful history lesson filled with your glory and your goodness, your faithfulness, your wonderful promises to David, and how you pursued him. And even in the midst of his incredible failure, you poured out your grace and you brought him to repentance and you restored him and you used him for good and for your glory. Father, it's so easy for us to fall into sin and and our hearts do wander. And I just pray, Father, that you would call us back, call us to repentance. Help us to turn our eyes to you and draw near. Help us, Father, not to play games with our spiritual lives or with sin, but to pursue you, to honor you, to love you with all of our heart. And Father, I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.